0: I'm Curtis Schaefer.
1: And I'm Martine Halverson Taylor, and this is Sacred and Profane. Today on the show, we're exploring how America's past can help us think about religion, pluralism, and tolerance today. You may recall our episode about the political legacies of the Persian King Cyrus. He's a major figure in the Hebrew Bible. And one of the leaders who was often compared to Cyrus the Great was George Washington. To his supporters, he was an American Cyrus, who was both a great military leader and a champion of religious freedom. But not everyone loved Washington, and his detractors had a comparison of their own. Washington, they said, was like the so-called Grand Lama of Tibet, sitting on his remote mountaintop at Mount Vernon, doing nothing, while his followers blindly worshipped him.
0: I first came across these comparisons while researching how much people in early America knew about Tibet and Buddhism. I was honestly a bit surprised that Tibetan Lamas were well-known enough that a snarky politician or newspaper editor could toss off this reference and expect their readers to understand it. But it turns out it wasn't just that people were writing jokes about Washington on his mountaintop. At least one 18th century American was finding out all they could about their Tibetan contemporaries.
2: The Grand Lama is a name given to the sovereign pontiff, or high priest of the Tibetan Tartars, who resides at Potoli, a vast palace on a mountain near the banks of Barunputur, about seven miles from Lhasa. The foot of this mountain is inhabited by 20,000 lamas, or priests, who have their separate apartments round about the mountain. He is not only the sovereign pontiff, the vicegerent of the deity on earth, but the more remote Tartars absolutely regard him as the deity of himself and call him God, the everlasting father of heaven.
0: So some of this is accurate. The Dalai Lama did have a huge palace, probably one of the biggest buildings in the world at the time. It is located on the Brahmaputra River in the city of Lhasa, And there were thousands of Tibetan Buddhist monks who lived in monasteries around that city. But there's some problems with the description. A a big one is that it completely misses the entire idea of Buddhism. That passage comes from a fascinating book that is both very much of its time when it was first published in 1784 and also breaking new ground.
1: The book we are talking about is a dictionary of all religions and religious sects, Jewish, heathen, Mohammedan, and Christian, ancient and modern.
0: That's a very catchy title.
1: Yes, though despite its grandiose globe-trotting title, most of it was written and researched in a tiny corner of Massachusetts by a woman who rarely left Greater Boston and who would become one of the first American women to earn a living solely by writing. How did this author write a book on global religions? Why did her book become a bestseller? And what can that tell us about early notions of religious freedom in the developing American democracy? What motivated her and why does it matter now?
0: Let's start with the basics. Our author was Hannah Adams.
2: I was born in Medfield, a country town about 18 miles from Boston.
0: She was the second of five children. Her parents were educated, but not wealthy. My father
2: early imbibed a love of literature and prepared to enter the university. But as he was the only son, His parents were strenuously opposed to his leaving them. This induced in him to open a shop for the sale principally of English goods and books. His taste for reading continued unabated till his death, which took place at the
0: advanced age of 88 years. And like her father, Adams had a profound love for books and learning. The first strong propensity of my mind, which I can recollect, was
2: an ardent curiosity and desire to acquire knowledge. I remember that my first idea of the happiness of heaven was of a place where we should find our thirst for knowledge fully gratified.
1: But it wasn't simply her ardent curiosity that turned her toward becoming an author. Her father
3: is a bookseller who fails at business and so she's driven by poverty by financial need to start writing
1: that's tony waljadan she's an associate professor of english at hendricks college and an expert in hannah adams and her literary world
3: you know after her father's business fails you know she's she's doing her best to help the family out, right? And this is when she begins to write, she writes some popular histories, she writes the dictionaries of religion, but she's, she's occupied, you know, through much of her life, trying to trying to earn money by her pen.
0: It might seem unusual that this is being written by a woman, but not as much as we might imagine. This is around the same time that Mary Wollstonecraft is beginning her career writing and publishing in England, and there are women writing in the U.S. too. One of the best-known poets in America at the time was an emancipated woman named Phyllis Wheatley, who also lived near Boston.
1: What does set Adam's writing apart from a lot of authors of her day, both male and female, is that she's actually making money, at least on her later editions.
0: I was surprised to see that U.S. copyright law was only put in place in 1783, the year before the first edition of the encyclopedia was created, and she used that to her advantage.
3: Two things are at play, right? First, you know, copyright law is loose, and so she's able to do this compiling project without worrying about, you know, any kind of violations there, right? But so then, you know, she enters into a really disadvantageous process contract like the terms are just totally against her and so while it sells and it's popular she's not the one making any money off of it and so i can only imagine how much it would have smarted right to have done the labor you know all of the labor of the text and to realize that she'd basically gotten suckered she defends her work and her copyright publicly after that she defends her right to be recognized as the author of her own work right and to benefit financially from her own labor.
1: The other thing about her writing that's fascinating is that it's popular. You have this book going into multiple printings. It's actually making enough money that it's worth fighting over the copyright. Looking at bestsellers now, which are largely books about history, self-help, a lot of novels, it's kind of astonishing that an encyclopedia of world religions is a big hit.
0: It makes some sense that it would be popular in the early days of the United States. This is in an era of the Enlightenment, when there's an idea that everyone having access to knowledge and education is going to change the world for the better. And let's not forget, we're in a young country that's formally committing to both democracy and the separation of church and state, and the idea that religious pluralism is something to be encouraged.
1: Actually, in that sense, it is a self-help book.
3: So thinking about thinking about Adams in the context of being in this young democracy, right, you know, being there at the birth of a nation, this is the time for a work like the dictionary. And this is a healthy part of the democratic impulse. That is to say, she's democratizing access to authoritative knowledge. She's making it possible for people to see and understand, you know, here's what we know she's careful about it right she's there's a there's a real caretaking being done about the fund of common knowledge that will be available to people in a democratic society you know if we're going to have this educated citizenry that you know someday will hopefully do the work of of governing itself she's interested in making sure that that citizenry has access to not inflammatory material but rather you know, measured.
1: Tony Waljadon says that an educated public wasn't just an abstract ideal for her. Adams sought to educate herself as well as her readers.
3: It's not just that she wants to make an encyclopedia of something, but she actually does want to have an encyclopedic knowledge of religion, to be able to grasp the whole and see the whole world. Um, and in part, that impulse for her seems to come from this place of wanting, wanting something other than the language of controversy to talk about forms of religious difference, in particular intra-Christian denominational difference. Right? She wants to be able to she wants to be able to understand or get her head around first, like why it is there's so many different you know, splinters or or ways of being Christian, ways of enacting Christianity.
2: I soon became disgusted with the want of candor in the authors I consulted in giving the most unfavorable descriptions of the denominations they disliked, and applying to them the name of heretics, fanatics, enthusiasts, etc. I therefore formed a plan for myself, made a blank book, and wrote rules for transcribing and adding to my compilation.
0: And the more she reads and the more she thinks, the bigger this project becomes. She's coming across accounts of all these other Christian sects, and there are a lot of those.
1: She's also started diving into texts of Christian missionaries who had encountered all sorts of other different religions, She's also reading other encyclopedias and collections that mention religion, even if only tangentially, and all these are broadening the scope of her project. To be sure, her perspective is not always impartial, objective, or even correct, since her sources are not. But as she begins to compile her sources, you can tell she is wrestling with the questions of her own faith.
3: So as the versions of the dictionary go on,
1: so this is 1790s, 1800s,
3: 18-teens, she's kind of getting her head around at this point, this idea that's current at the time of the world being divided into four major religious parts, right? So there are the Christians, there are Jews, there are Muslims, and then there's the category that she would call, the people of the period would call heathens, you know, basically any religion that doesn't fit into the previous three categories. And so you're seeing in missionary writing around this period this kind of turn towards statistics, right? Lots of kind of head counting. And as she acquires and takes on those statistics, you know, it's it's readily apparent to her and she expresses this real concern. You see this kind of trembling, you know, that Christianity, of course, is making these, you know, exclusive claims to truth, and yet so much of the world, you know, is not Christian.
1: So that makes for a tension in her desire to be even-handed and to confront the fact that Christianity is competing on a crowded stage. This is one of the things that is remarkable. She's reckoning very early on with global knowledge and perspectives, which she got from libraries and books in her hometown that show that her beliefs are not the only beliefs. In fact, she's recognizing that as a Christian, she's not even in the majority.
3: She's both fascinated by that variation and I think also troubled by it.
0: Yeah, so at the beginning of the show, we wondered how this author, who has really not left Massachusetts, is able to get all this information about global religion. And the answer may be that she's able to plug into this larger network of scholars and scholarship in and around Boston. Her project actually feels a little bit like Wikipedia, in a way. She's going around taking notes on any books about religion she can get her hands on. First, from family and friends. She hangs out in bookstores, taking notes from books she can't afford to buy.
1: And as the work keeps getting larger and larger, a friend pays for her membership at the Boston Athenaeum, one of the largest libraries in the United States at the time.
3: She's the first woman to get access to the library collections there, precisely because the earlier editions of the dictionary are recognized as valuable. And I think of how what a relief it must have been to her. It's like, oh gosh, I have a chair and a table, <laughs> you know, <laughs> I have a chair and a table, it's somewhere to put this book, rather than standing there in the aisles of a bookshop for hours.
0: And she kept working on the project, even as it went to print several times. By the fourth printing, the work was well respected enough that a distant relative invited her to take advantage of his own private library.
2: She was invited to pass a week or two at the late President Adams at Quincy with the offer of his library as an inducement to accept the invitation. He was much struck with the rapidity with which she went through folios of the venerable fathers and made some pleasant remarks in consequence, which induced her to speak of their contents. He then found that, While she had been turning over leaf after leaf, she had been calling all that could be useful in her labors.
3: Getting access to materials is a problem, but um, she figures it out, and you know, through the help of of different people, you know, kind of beg, borrows, and steals her way to getting access to materials.
1: It's interesting, though, I mean, that, to go back to your thoughts about the materiality of the book, she needed to possess them, right? It wasn't enough to just read them. She needed to copy them and have, and have them. Like there's, there's a certain, I mean, so much when we scroll, you know, through Google searches, you know, it's, it's ephemeral, it's fleeting. We don't have it. The act of copying is an act of, of possession.
3: Yes. 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 And I think that's totally right to think of, you know, and this is where our ideas about originality and authorship really keep us from understanding the the power and creativity of what she did. You know, every word that went into the dictionary had to pass through her hands, right, through this kind of manuscript copying act. All of us as researchers or people as readers, right, you know, you can Google something and you can read something on a screen and it can just be very or even in a written text and can be totally in one ear and out the other right um, But the things that we copy over become a part of us and and I think there is a real sense of where she's taking that in, right She's taking all of that in and then putting it back out in this ordered fashion. Um, I think it's really beautiful as a as a way of working in the world it's not the same it's not the same kind of creativity right but it's 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 real it's powerful
0: and she always enables her readers to go fact check for themselves because she includes her sources i think that's one thing that really differentiates the form of her work from our current media environment where There is no need in most social media to show your sources, to show your work. It's just there in a kind of timeless present.
3: Right. And I think it's interesting as well that, you know, so you you use an encyclopedia and it's like, well, I'm going to find out some knowledge now. Right. And so you're doing the work of fact checking. It makes you a more... Autonomous and responsible person who's engaged in the pursuit of knowledge. Adams is giving you her sources, right? So you see the entry, and then you'll see at the bottom, you know, a little asterisk in and Mashon's geography or a particular text she's citing in the moment. That project of being a person who looks up sources and Adams is turned towards a, a positive and responsible end. Whereas, because we have so much everything from weak to just false information out there right that doesn't cite sources that good desire to be a person who fact checks right is really led astray by by contemporary media forms
1: so we have this extraordinary physical object that an author in 18th century Boston compiles to try to reckon with the sheer diversity of religions in the world it's not complete or completely accurate But even as it goes astray, her book is a proponent for what she calls ardent curiosity and maybe even the beginning of tolerance. It at least seems to show a real interest by her and her fellow Americans in making sense of their place in the world. What should we make of it?
3: I think one... One thing that Adams helps us to understand and remember is the territory and the people that become the United States in this period that is all so new, that is this experiment, is also deeply global, right? You know, people are aware that there's a world out there, you know, that that's this is a um, there's this always already this sense of deep connectedness between America and Americanness, and ideas about the outside world. I mean, we can see how deeply tied into the rest of the world, you know, the American reading population always already is.
0: Is is there any value today about knowing about, about the American past? Right, as an historian of the, of of knowledge production in America, is is there a value today? <laughs> <laughs> professionally, we hope so.
3: <laughs> I hope so. I mean, <laughs> I have, professionally, we hope so, right? I think there is. I mean, because history can be taken as often about legacy. That is to say, like what ha- the question of the past is: what has we have we inherited? But another valuable way to look at it is, you know, not necessarily that we have inherited everything from the past because ideas stop, die, right? Things things go away. And so learning about past worlds and past ways of living in the world and people like Hannah Adams, what that provides for us is other options, right? You know, this is another way that somebody lived in a world full of difference. It's not our world. It's not the same problems necessarily, but here's how she did it. And that can be, I think that's, that's in the service of expanding our world, making our world, richer more complex from Adams' perspective she's a person who struggled right and struggled in public intellectually with these ideas and and tried to think about them fairly and well and and that's important for us like i think that's a great example for us it's maybe we could use we could use a little bit more of that in our world <laughs>
0: Sacred and Profane was produced for the Religion, Race, and Democracy Lab at the University of Virginia. Our program manager is Ashley Duffalo. Our senior producer is Emily Gaddick. Kelly Jones is the lab's editor. Our guest is Tony Wall jadon Our readers are Angie Chapman and Megan Sinclair.
1: Music for this episode comes from Blue Dot Sessions, You can find out more about our work at religionlab.virginia.edu or by following us on Twitter at The Religion Lab.